I'm Claire. And I'm Ashley. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Oh my god, you guys, welcome. We had a huge influx this week from TikTok. So if you're here from TikTok, good lord, I hope you like what you find because we are fucking desperate. <laughs> <laughs> we need you. Please stay for the love of God. I please have carpal stay. tunnel from captioning those goddamn videos. And then people are like, caption them better. And I'm like, my finger will fall off. My joints are numb. I'm 28 years old. I don't have the, the flexibility anymore that it takes. But I'm trying. Good lord, am I trying. Oh my God, we try our best most of the time, and that's what counts. Um, okay, good, she's literally checking a, good a text chunk right of now. It. I'm not checking a text. I'm pulling up the thing because I wanted to give a quick shout out to remind people to review and then thank the people who have reviewed. And I don't remember them off the top of my head. I needed the list. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. Go. <laughs> Dallas Von Alex, our OG hero. AK40, another OG. God damn, I love these early ones are all from YF and I don't okay. think we can really spend half an hour. Okay, Brit Fan 69. That's a lot of just letters. <laughs> Who the Bart? Uh, three cups of coffee. Pleasantly surprised fan. Biz Chris. Eliza. <laughs> Snoot face. No thanks to Lane NN, who gave us a bad review. <laughs> oh B- bad but valid. <laughs> Singing Oreo. T.L. Jones. And D. Snoo. I just think you guys are all our uh, heroes. And if you guys leave a review, we'll thank you on the podcast because I, that's all I want is reviews. All right. For people who are new to this podcast, normally we would spend the beginning 15 minutes talking about our lives and our mishaps. But unfortunately, we have one of the greatest guests we've ever had this week. And the episode was two hours long. I edited it down to the best parts. I mean, I almost feel like this, even the scraps could have been sold on eBay. <laughs> My God, for thousands. For thousands of dollars. And you guys are getting it for free. It's like when Harry Styles sneezes and then they sell like whatever was in his sneeze spray (laughs) path on eBay. (laughs) A sneezed upon tissue. Um, Not even the tissue, whatever. Just like the aerosols. Yeah. Like they they cut up the carpet in his vicinity and they sell those scraps. Yes, the scraps of this podcast are a lot like the scraps of a, a snoot on Harry Styles carpet. Anyway, our guest this week is so amazing. He Are we is, just doing this as the intro? We're not going to do any personal memoirs? Actually, the episode is literally an hour and a half. Okay. I just didn't know if people liked that. Did anything? T- I got into a huge fight with my coworker where I screamed at him, you need to read a fucking book because I thought he was being racist. So let's see if that pans out badly for my bonus. <laughs> oh, I did want to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put it on the Patreon. If you guys are interested, let's check out our Patreon. It's just $5 okay. a month. Anyway. This week's guest. All right, you guys, we're back. Um, <laughs> we really wanted the new listeners to get a good sense of what we're like, and what we're like is deeply unorganized. If you guys want to fast forward through this, I mean, for sure do it. Please, for the love of God, do it. If you're here for Mateo, which you should be, you should not be here for us. Go forward. <laughs> but if you do you want to get the full Claire and Ashley Subway <laughs> Memoir Book Club experience, this is what it's like every week. Ashley, <laughs> what was the name of your memoir this week? The name of my memoir this week was... Um, um, oh, I didn't think of an actual name for it. Something, God, you just fought me on this. <laughs> I did fight you on this. Okay, for the love of God, hold on. Okay, I wanted to talk about how it's funny that like every week, whatever I say the name of my memoir is, the next week is like the complete opposite. Like there was one week where I was like having fun and dating. The next week I was a simp bitch. The next week I was single as hell. Then the next week I was like growing and learning. And this week I've like completely devolved into my worst self. <laughs> yeah, it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> I like really went on a bender this weekend. I will say it wasn't entirely my fault. It was A, beautiful. B, good things happened for the first time in 2020. C, um, I don't know. I just like hung out with my friends 
at a bears bar and they were just like giving us shots of Malort, which is like this Polish prank juice from Chicago. It's like this horrible liquor that you do. I, I don't know anywhere else that would ever give it to people, but can I just say, as the person who was who was closest to you when you said you were growing, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Um, I was I trying let it go. to grow. I know you're trying. And, I, and as a person who was also trying to grow in the way of I'm not actually changing myself, I'm just editing myself, I was not a cunt to you about what you said. I just Thank said, you. if she thinks she's growing, that's her problem. Can I say I did think I was growing at the time? And it was your problem. <laughs> Anyway, this weekend, I honestly, this year, like, haven't had, like, a real bender of a weekend, and I thought it was because I was, like, getting older and better, and then I realized it was because we were in a pandemic, and I wasn't able to. It was illegal to go outside, but yeah, you did a good job not beer hopping this year. (laughs) I, like, really had a weekend this weekend where I, and then I, like, just have justified it to myself today by being, like, okay, I didn't have a breakup, like, weekend in, in August, like, I didn't get to have, like, a a crazy weekend then I didn't have like any you know what I mean like all of the normal summer things where I would have like gotten a little too drunk or like done drugs or something like didn't happen this year and so this weekend was like all of it in one and I feel bad today (laughs) (laughs) it would be so funny if everything you deserved from this summer and your breakup you got to cash in later in your life like you were just married in one weekend (laughs) you're like hey I was never a slut after (laughs) me and this one guy broke up so I'm actually gonna cash in on this weekend (laughs) I know. I also kind of have been a slut since we broke up, despite the pandemic. Um, safely. I've safely been a whore. <laughs> She's been doing it the Hasidic way, through a Wait. sheet. <laughs> but I wanted to tell you two things that have happened in the last, like, hour that have, like, really just, like, sh- like I had, like, such a fun, good weekend. And then, like, people keep on saying things to me that have, like, been beating me back into my place. Like, with all the love in their heart, just, like, saying horrible things to me. Today, my mom called me, and she told me that she watched Emily in Paris. And she's like, it was so funny to watch it. And I was like, because it was really bad, right? And she's like, no, because it was you. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I didn't watch it, but I just feel like that's actually a compliment to you. Um, because she was like, well, you she's like people's complaints about it like basically like all the things i was inferring she was like you um are bad like, you work media. in social media but things just like kind of work out for you but you're like not like i'm bad at it <laughs> and i was like okay this is like just hurting my feelings like all the things that everyone hates about emily in paris are things that are true about me <laughs> she's the skinniest girl in the world okay well i guess that's a compliment yeah um, and then Rudes, our dearest, dearest Rudes, a listener of this podcast, <laughs> tagged me on something on Twitter about me being the side character. Like it was like a tweet about like, I think it was like, honestly, in the nicest of ways, it was like, people always want to be the main character, but like the side characters have the best lives. They dress better. They're cuter, like whatever this and that. And he goes, this is Ashley. <laughs> and I was like, I do think that this is a compliment, but it's hurting my feelings. Can I say as the person that he knows you in context of, that would make me the main character who's actually the worst one <laughs> so rudes our biggest fan and number one supporter has somehow with a compliment managed to hurt both of our feelings <laughs> it really was like over the course of like 30 minutes while i was walking here i had my mom calling me emily in paris and rudes calling me the side character and i was like jesus fucking christ you're a Can side a character in emily break. in paris you're just some disgusting parisian man I'm the baguette she gets on the first day and takes one photo with and throws in the trash. And then I'm Emily, the person everybody hates. The skinny one. Who everybody hates. I'm just admitting I'm Emily post baguette. Anyway, so that's my week. Um, those are the things I needed to talk about that I insisted we talk about on the podcast. Claire. 
Hit me with your week. Oh, I guess frazzled for justice. Um, <laughs> You're a hero. <laughs> I am kind of a hero. Um, if you guys want to hear more about it, I don't want to get fired from my job. So please supply, subscribe to the Patreon because for $5, I think that's a fair trade-off for me not getting fired because this Patreon does not yet pay my bills. Oh, it sure does not. All right. Finally. 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 To, to the crux, the meat, the... The juice. Oh, the heat. The thing. What's that steak wrapped in pastry? Uh, anyway, beef Wellington, the beef Wellington of the podcast. I learned about beef Wellington from you. Isn't it funny how I teach and I forget? That's why (laughs) this is the giver. I've given you all of my memories to hold on to so that you could give them back on the podcast. All right, here we go. This week's guest. He is a trained opera singer. He is an incredible comedian with specials on Netflix. You've known him from Girl Code, Guy Code. And if you've ever been the comedy seller, he's there every night. He is a Mariah Carey super fan. Give it up for Mateo Lane. Wait, you've met Mariah Carey? Yes, I gave her a hug and we sang Always Be My Baby together. Where did you meet her? So I met her because I, I never shut up about Mariah Carey, obviously. And I used to be on this show called Girl Code and Guy Code. And the producers of Girl Code and Guy Code, I mean, every episode I talked about Mariah Carey, they're like, it's enough with Mariah Carey. So I got a, a Stucky is one of the producers. He talks like this. So I got a random call from Stucky and goes, Mateo. I said, hi, Stucky. He goes, look, I got a surprise for you but I can't tell you what it is until you get here. And I said, I know it's about Mariah Carey. What is it? And he goes, fuck y'all. He already knows. <laughs> and he goes, they're doing this thing where Mariah Carey is going to surprise fans in an elevator. Like they open the door and she's in there and then you just take an elevator ride. Mariah Carey, apparently the Backstreet Boys did it, blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay. So I went there because I knew the producers. I got like a nice waiting room and like a lunch and stuff. Everyone else is in the cold. And um, they're like, it, you know, Mariah was an hour and a half late. And um, they open, they're like, okay, you're ready for Mariah. So there they go. I go and they open the elevator door and there she fucking is. And it was me and like five other people and her makeup artist. And she was in the corner. She was well lit. So, and I was on her right side, which is her good side. So she couldn't look at me. <laughs> so when she would talk to me, she would sort of like do that and like lean to me. And, um, yeah, she was, everyone was freaking out, right? They were like, oh, my God, oh, man. But I think because it's comics, I'm so used to adrenaline yeah. that I know how to manage those feelings. So I thought, okay, don't freak out. Say, just talk to Mariah. I'm like, how was your tour in Asia? And she was like, oh, it was good. And I was like, cool. And then people were like, my favorite song of yours. Like, they're just screaming. So I said, well, my favorite song of yours is Outside, which is a song she talks about in this book. And she was like, we love that one. And then they started playing Always Be My Baby. So the whole elevator is like, you'll always be a part of me. And she was like, shoo-doo-doo, oh. And then at one point, the door opened and a bunch of fans started screaming. And Mariah, instead of going like, hi, she went, you know, that whistle tone. She's like way up there. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yes. God. God, she is such a fucking pro. <laughs> okay. The listeners who don't know, Mateo is an opera singer. You were trained <laughs> as an opera singer. <laughs> I'm a bass. A beautiful. Oh my God. And your love of Mariah Carey, I imagine it's from like a lot of recognition, respect. Like I know she's a good singer, but I feel like you know <laughs> she's a good well, singer. Can you walk us through your fandom? 
So I did not fall in love with Mariah Carey until I became a singer. I started singing when I was 15. I um, have a naturally good voice and my teacher heard me sing and was like, you need to study with someone. So when you're learning how to sing, you're trying to find the best, the best, the best, the best, because you just want to absorb and learn and absorb. So I think my first love of great singers was Barbara Streisand because she's one, a great singer and two, more accessible maybe because that's the her singing is difficult in the way that she's so good but like it's not these vocal acrobats that like mariah or whitney's doing and then um i really got to know mariah carey obviously i knew who she was but i got to know her as a singer when i heard the song emotions at my friend ricky's house and i couldn't believe the whistle register like how high she could push the voice and I became obsessed with it. I was like, oh my God, who is this woman who's like, I, I fall, I like singers who are extreme in their voices. Cleo Lane is a jazz singer, five octave vocal range. Uh, I love Whitney Houston, Yima Sumak. I love Maria Callas, like these sort of like extreme singers. Mariah Carey was an extreme singer. I mean, she was this combination of Minnie Ripperton, Whitney Houston, and Barbara Streisand all in one. And she was beautiful. So I became obsessed with Mariah Carey's voice and then really fell in love with her during the Charm Bracelet album, which is not a, a critically acclaimed album. It was the album after Glitter, which she talks about in this book, and then became Emancipation and Mimi. So I kind of got back, I kind of got into the Mariah Carey fan wagon when no one else was like, we're done with her. And I was like, wait, I was like, she's really good. <laughs> I was like catching up. I was like, she's really good. And then Emancipation and Mimi came out and I sort of felt like, like lifted from that too because the person that I stuck with was like all over the radio winning every single award and I was like you did it Mariah and then as I became a comedian I sort of have a more sketchy relationship with her because I made so many jokes um her fans hate me oh no <laughs> not You're all of them but the ones I don't tweet anymore but I used to make tweets all the time about Mariah Carey an enemy not of the lambs things, but just like <laughs> You know, she was a she's a pretty easy target in terms of making jokes about the dresses and the attitude and the mishaps and the you know it's yeah. That's so funny. We had a Britney podcast where we like we criticized her with love, which is how me and Ashley were raised. That if you really love someone, you point out what they're doing wrong. <laughs> and Britney well, fans did not like that. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing: is like there's a difference between. You know, a, a comedian's job is to, if, if there's something happening, we have to address it, right? And so I used to make the joke that Mariah Carey's fans should not be called lambs, they should be called enablers. Because there were times where, especially the Stella years, which she did not talk about in this book, it was a really rough time, about 2014 to 2017, 16, she was managed by this psycho woman named Stella, and she really took advantage of Mar Mariah, and there seemed to be allegedly just she seemed out of it a lot. Um, now Mariah seems healthy and good again. Her voice sounds great. You know, she seems to be in a good place. But it, I was making lots of jokes because it's like, okay, she was acting like a lunatic in these videos of her running around her house screaming and doing that. It was just a bizarre behavior. And so, of course, I'm going to make a joke. And her fans like, she, she can't do anything wrong. It's like, okay, we're going to criticize Trump fans for being like, yeah. no matter what he does, it's it's like... I'm not saying criticize Mariah, but maybe take a step back and don't just constantly defend. 
She's like, she's acting insane. Like you can't be like, oh, another stroke of genius from Mariah when she's like acting like a lunatic. Right. I understand the, it, it's, I, I feel bad because she is, she's a woman and a woman of color and she's in this industry and she probably gets enough. She doesn't need people to continue making jokes about her. But I think we are not civilians. We are comedians and it is our job to point out things that happen. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Joan Rivers made jokes about tons of celebrities and guess what? Nicole Kidman went on to win an Oscar and lives in a giant house. You know, so it's like, you know, I don't know. And I also think there's things that are like, on board and like below board. Like we used to make fun of how Britney Spears dressed all the time just because it is hilarious. Like object, it was very harmless, I think, to make fun of a woman who has a hundred million dollars and access to every stylist and loves a good like Walmart clearance rack. <laughs> like that is, it's sweet. And I feel like you can say it with love when you do respect them and like them. And then there's making fun of Amy Winehouse the day before she's dead. There's making fun of Chadwick Boseman because he's skinny. Yeah. And there's like just like taking cheap shots at people you hate and then there's ripping on people that you love who are like doing something weird. <laughs> right. So I think you hit a good point. Like for me, if I look back, not I used, look, I used to partake in a lot of type of comedy that I wouldn't anymore, but that's growing. It's true. It's like if I was 27 or 26 thinking I'm a hot shot, you know, saying the thing that's going to get, you know, now I'm 34 and I've been in this business for a minute and reading this book, I was like, I get it. You know, and I was a young kid saying stupid things and I don't think anyone can hold you against, hold that against you. But um, yeah. yeah, I think Ashley, you bring up a good point where it's like Mariah isn't someone that I hate. Mariah is someone that I admire and adore. And I, I just hire, I, I hold her to such a high pedestal and we'll get to why in a minute. But I mean, it's just, you know, I think. I think a lot of it came from disappointment, you know, like going to see her live. I've seen her live eight times. Wow. Lip syncing and, you know, the sort of like laziness, you know, the only concert I saw her where she truly turned things like around, which it was this, the very first Beacon Theater Christmas show she did like seven years ago. And she had just gotten off the scandal of... Um, the the bad singing of at the Christmas tree and the divorce with Nick and and she had something to prove like I am fucking Mariah Carey I've won six Grammys I write all my own music I have nineteen number one hits I'm gonna show you and I still look back at those recordings on YouTube and think Mariah was giving full daydream 1995 96 Mariah Carey era vocals caring about her song, crying during Hero. Like, she was so present. She -hmm. was really present. And I felt like I got a glimmer of the genius that is Mariah Carey, where a lot of times I saw her and I thought, okay, like, I would, I'd, uh, I get it. I get it. We talked about that in our book, how, like, her fans saved her and, like, they truly loved and respected her. And she feels like that's her only true, honest relationship and so I feel like when you as the artist say that say that like my fans are my family I want to do everything for them and then you come through and disappoint seven out of eight times you set up that dynamic to say that I owe everything to them and then you chose to and that being said like I don't expect her to sound look she's a a woman of an age of a certain age right I know she thinks she's 12 but she's (laughs) almost 50 the vocal cords don't Mariah Carey when she's just singing she actually sounds great it's when she's trying to pretend that it's still 93 and yeah. so, yeah. you know, everything's in the same key and that's, you know. And, Can you walk and, me through actually the science of that? Like, I always forget that your vocal cords are a muscle and I always get confused 
So you can run out of it. So Mariah Carey <laughs> actually has talked about having something called voice nodules. So we'll get just hold on to that for a second. Is that what Adele had? Adele had, I believe, a hemorrhage in her vocal fold, and she had to get it like fixed. She had something a little different. Didn't Julie Andrews have nodules, and she got them removed, and then she could never sing again? She had polyps, which would turn into nodules, and she went to go get them fixed, and they fucked it up, and. She can never sing again, which I understand Mariah Carey not wanting to get rid of those because, you know. Because if they fuck it up, she's toast. So uh, the vocal cords are a muscle like any other muscle, right? Um, It's like an athlete. You have to keep training and training and doing and training. You You cannot be lazy with it. Like Tony Bennett is in his early hundreds and he's still warming up every day and producing sound. Patty LaBelle still sounds good because Patty LaBelle works at it. Now, Mariah Carey was blessed with a truly incredible voice. It wasn't just the fact that she had a five octave vocal range, which a five octave vocal range means like the average singer has two and a half octaves, right? An octave is seven notes going from C to the next C. So, oh, you know, so she can do from way down low to you know, she goes the whole, almost the whole gamut, right? Very few other singers can sing and within her range. Um, also, the tone of her voice. She had this in, in her high chest belts, right? So a chest voice is, this is my chest voice. This is my falsetto. So in her chest voice, she pushed it so high. If you're a singer, she sings about a G5, baby, A5 flat, right? Which is just... It's just so high in your chest voice, right? And she had a resonant sound. She kept things sounding just so... It just had a beautiful resonance, this sort of wail to her sound. She just had an incredible, incredible high chest voice, super low notes, the whistle tones. I mean, she was incredible. Then I think at 97, 96, she broke up with Tommy and found her freedom, wasn't resting, was partying, um, and she has delicate vocal cords and those voice nodules, if you have them, which is a basically a nodule on your vocal fold, they can swell. And if they swell, you miss notes like your voice becomes raspy. You can't you know, you're tired. You can't sing certain notes. And, and I think you can hear like a vocal shift in Mariah's voice around the butterfly era because, you know, I think she decided she needed to go out and have a good time, you know, but that was, there's it's. It's a muscle, it's an athlete, and you can't just go out and party and expect to sound the same the next night. And so I think she started to, if you watch her at the Tokyo Dome in 96, and then the next tour, the Butterfly Tour, singing Make It Happen, huge shift in the voice. Not that it was bad, it just was a shift. Interesting. Where does your respect come from? I feel like that's like a dumb question. My respect comes from her. her. But you specifically... I am so drawn to her voice because I find her to have an incredibly interesting voice. I think her voice, even though Whitney Houston, I think just slightly is a technically better singer. Mariah Carey's voice is far more interesting to me. And I think her music writing ability is what also makes her so unique and special. I mean, Mariah Mm -hmm. Carey's an actual genius, a fucking genius. There's no argument. Um, So I respect her on multiple levels, but I was just so drawn into the... She's like a superhero. Like she has a power that people, normal people do not have. 
um, which is amazing. But I think that also causes a lot of downfall because when you have something so rare and so unique, people try and take advantage of you. And that we read, everyone tried to take advantage of it for it. Yeah. Well, what I was blown away in the book was not just like the raw talent, but also the discipline that she had from such an early age. She talks about at 12, deciding she wanted to make it in music and studying the radio, writing her own songs. She was doing background vocals in Long Island at 40. I mean, she just seemed so disciplined and the way she studied it and almost academic about it. And when she talked about being able to do adult contemporary in her sleep and being able to just like write a jingle, write a rock. I mean, I love the story about that weird alt band she did. That's so funny. I was listening to an interview where they're basically digging that up right now. And like currently the promo copies are selling for hundreds of dollars. People are trying to find it. A couple of music people are speculating that they might re-release it because of the hype from this book, because every time it gets added to YouTube, it gets taken down in like minutes. And so I think that um, it's because they're like getting ready to re-release it for us. <laughs> so as a fan, what was illuminated for you? Um, I, I knew a lot about Mariah Carey's life. I've seen every interview. I, I know all her music. You can kind of read between the lines and a lot of her songs. Um, I did not know my all was written about Derek Jeter. That uh, was shocking how like word for word that was just you were there with them on that roof that night if you ever listened to that song I'd give my all to have one more night with you i'd risk my life um i found the first part of the book i'd say the first third of it where she talks about her childhood her relationship with her father brother sister mother the mother i actually found the most interesting and i'll get to that um but mainly her talking about being biracial, being black, what that meant growing up in the 60s. I, it actually really softened my heart for Mariah Carey because I think, she, not because of the trauma she went through, but the fact that she was finally able to be open and honest about what she went through. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think she was so guarded for so many years to talk about the, the trials and tribulations and the struggle about her identity and what that means. And I just found it, I felt almost like a release for her. Like, oh, thank God she's able to tell this story. And I cried a few times. And I don't know why specifically the her coloring her family in when she was a kid. I mean, of all the trauma, this is like the least of it. Right. But it's like she was coloring her family and used a a brown crayon for her dad. My Chicago accent crayon. (laughs) And um that all the teachers started laughing at her. And I just, I think as someone who's queer and not understanding, obviously, what it's like to be, I mean, I know I'm part Mexican, but obviously I live, it's like a whole thing. But I, being queer, I understand being on the outside. That's why I relate to that song, Outside, so much. I think that's why she has a lot of queer fans as well, because the not feeling in the right place your whole life is something that is identifiable as a queer person. But obviously raises a whole other issue. Um, but just knowing that feeling of being laughed at as a kid and not know, not having the words or or tools to to fight back or get out of it or understand what's happening and just that to me was the most devastating. Like I just wanted to hold young Mariah and be mm-hmm. like, just like you're going to like the amount of happiness you're going to bring so many people one day. I just, it's just so, it's so heartbreaking. That was the, for some reason of all the things in the book, 
That was the most heartbreaking for me. Well, I think everybody's had that moment of shame that they can remember being four and all the adults are laughing and you don't know why. And you're so consumed with being wrong, like especially a teacher, somebody who's a law for them to laugh at who your family is and tell you your family is wrong. I mean, that is so just like the shame that would feel. And then most people it's like, oh, you hugged the wrong dad or something like it's something. But hers was rooted in such a deep, true. It was rooted in racism and to have your teachers be like codifying that. And also how alone in her journey she was the whole time. And like, I think that was the hardest thing about reading it. Like you could really tell that kind of until this book, she's kept it to herself for the most part because every time she would try to open up about how alone and like different she felt, you could see how Tommy Matola was really suppressing that in her, like really everywhere in her life. Like growing up, she would try and talk about it with her mom and her mom... I mean, we like talk about her mom's like a very interesting character, really did not help her through it. Her dad was like not very present. Her siblings, because she was so much more white passing, um, just kind of really invalidated her experience entirely. And like she kind of had no one to talk to about any of this. I think it would almost would have been better for her to have not blown up as quickly as she did because Mm -hmm. there was no middle ground to build an identity outside of being Mariah daughter of a broken family and then Mariah the superstar that everyone wanted a piece of like there was no middle ground where she got to kind of run around with friends who were all making it together and had nothing to take from one another but that's a very interesting point that you make like that she went from she really had such a in the grand scheme a small tiny part of her life where she had real freedom yeah and then was a star. But I think when you're somebody with that much talent, you don't, it's, it's, it's done. Yeah. It's written in yeah. the stars. You don't have a choice. Your life will just inevitably be absorbed and consumed by that talent. Mm-hmm. But the Tommy thing was also really interesting because I feel like a lot of big stars, there is like a couple years where they're kind of blowing up. And like, even if their first thing is huge, there's, sort of a brief period between when they become famous and where the money comes in. Whereas like for her, she went from living in like that crawl space to like building. Like remember that one part where she's like, luckily this other backup singer got me this $700 a month crawl space. And I was like, I think you were being ripped off. I really feel like you could have gotten a bedroom for $700 in like the 90s. I think also... We, I, you know, to give mm-hmm. Mariah credit, she was driven and she was like, right. I'm a singer. And she left school and she was making tapes and she was taking loans from her brother. And she, she didn't start when she left high school. She started when she was like 12 years old. Right. And so, because you know what I mean? Because so much of that groundwork had been built when she was still under her mother's care. I felt like there was, she could have gone yeah. like four college years. I really right. think that, that could have made the difference. The way that she went from like the crawl space, because right when her career was getting started is when she got with Tommy, who was already very rich. He was already like treating her very posh yeah. and like they, I mean, they, she kind of went from like a crawl space to like building her own $30 million mansion in a year. And I think that she literally like talks about renting that studio in like Chelsea or something for the first time when she signs her first deal and she's like, I finally got my own apartment, but then immediately meets Tommy. And so she like really didn't have any in between time where she was like living any sort of a normal life. She was like a starving artist and then like the biggest pop star in the world. <laughs> I do want to say a couple things before we move on to her career. One thing I found really funny, and just just as an Italian, mm-hmm. um, she brings up Italian culture a lot. 
in her childhood. (laughs) And not just like living in Capri, loving Italy, her dad's, you know, pasta with clams, describing the pasta. And she knew that don't put the Parmesan cheese on it. Like that's such an Italian thing is to not put Parmesan cheese on the pot. You never put cheese on top of seafood pastas. That's just a rule in Italy. I had no idea. I learned it from this book when she had like an absolute meltdown about it. And my also my favorite thing, too, is she talked about the black women in her life, uh, the equipment and the materials that they had to give her the, the makeover was too strong because her hair was, you know, finer. And mm-hmm. her mother didn't teach her anything, didn't comb her hair, didn't make it, you know. The people who taught her, uh, who had the same texture in their hair, who had the same... <laughs> Were the Italian girls, yeah, the Guidettes, and uh, these these Italian girls who were Long Island Italian girls who really loved hair and makeup, which is so Italian, right? Like, oh, I can't even mention the you know everyone. Yeah. Everyone in Italian families has the you know, but it's like it makes sense because I know my mother and her sisters are actually biracial; they're actually Mexican and Italian, but they all have insane hair, and it reminded me of my aunt Cindy telling the story about her hair. My aunt Cindy is, my mother got the uh, lighter jeans, right? So my mom has like green eyes, light skin. My aunt Cindy looks fully Mexican. And she said when she was younger, she did, you know, their dad left them. Their dad's Mexican. And so it was just my grandma and these five kids and trying to make it work. It was very similar to Mariah's story in a lot of ways. And my Aunt Cindy said she had no idea how to do her hair. And, you know, when she was 13, she got this big, thick, black, curly Mexican hair and no one teaching her how to do it and how to comb it. How to, so my Aunt Cindy said she just, she hated that it was getting curly, so she would just cut it at the root and then it would get worse. <laughs> then it would get worse. And so she oh got all these pictures of her, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, it's just my Aunt Cindy's story. Like, you're this mixed kid. You've got super ethnic hair and you need, she needed a Mexican woman to pull her aside and say, this is how you do your hair. It just was, it just, I just, that story and Mariah, like I could pin it to my family in a lot of I ways. wanted to ask you when you said, so you're Mexican, I mean, the colorism that's displayed in this book, like the, seeing it. And I think it's so interesting because, I mean, obviously racism is a hot topic and I, I know <laughs> the conservatives love to be like, it's over. We beat it with legislation. But I think- <laughs> Like, I was so moved by this book in the way it was able to show intergenerational trauma and the way that even though she is white passing, and I'm sure, like, you can like being white passing, that doesn't mean you're not raised by people who have been touched by racism and the trauma that that inflicts on somebody. If you have trauma in you, you're going to raise children with trauma, showing, like, where her parents came from, where her grandparents came from. That experience of how racism can't be turned over in five years it doesn't matter if you have a good job it's the it's the trauma in you it's the experience you have and then Mm -hmm. the difficulty not being able to talk about it with her white side like to have the whole group of people who are raising you who have no idea the trauma you feel yeah I mean it was I thought it was really well done this is actually really interesting so Mariah Carey when she was on um Oprah very first time I think 1992 uh, Oprah Winfrey talks to her about her race in a way that I don't even think I, I I don't think anybody would talk to you about race that way. Especially when the first album came out and Andre, my hairdresser, he got it first and he was playing it and it's all, you know, we were all singing to it and I sing in the shower and I think I'm a you for a minute. Um, 
I fling my hair around. Um, but they all say, oh, this is a white girl. She sounds black. Oh, no, it's a black girl, but she isn't. She's white. No, she isn't. I think she's mine. I think she's white. I think she's a... So, what are you? Um, my mother is Irish. Uh -huh. A person, first, first yeah. and foremost. Um, my mother is Irish. My father is Venezuelan and black. Okay. So, I'm... Um, you have heard it here. Would y'all please stop discussing this girl's race? So, I'm... I am, first of all, what are you? Who would ask that to somebody? That we've obviously changed how we talk. <laughs> but um, I remember being young and hearing those conversations. Of like, what I, is Mariah? What is Mariah Carey? Yeah. I remember hearing her on the radio. People thought it was Whitney Houston. And then people said, no, it's a white girl. Then people said, no, this is a black girl. She's black. I, I remember the mystery around Mariah Carey when she first came out was, are those high notes hers? Is she faking it? Is she white? Is she black? Is she like she was a huge mystery when she first came out? I just felt I, that was very telling of reading the book. I kept thinking about that interview on Oprah and people pressing her about what are like making her have to define herself so the world is quote unquote more comfortable with what she is. Like it's so yeah. gross, like how people just were like, What are you? It's like, what? I didn't really know Mariah Carey going in. I always knew the diva, like the general diva rumors about her. But this story, I mean, it's a memoir about being black in America, about being a light-skinned black woman in America and like the triumph of her being able to come into her own. And now I'm kind of like, I don't, there is not a story that could come out, I guess, barring like physical violence to an assistant or something where I'd be like, good. I mean, when you see how successful she is, how dominant she is, that she wrote, produced, sings, so many hits. I wasn't a Mariah Carey fan going through this book. I was like, oh, I know that one. I know that one. I know that one. The Emancipation of Mimi. I mean, I listened on the radio every morning, getting ready for school, all through middle school. Like, it was yeah. every day. Like, she's so dumb. She dark. said her favorite song that wished was a, uh, one of her favorite songs in the album that she says wished was a single was um, uh, uh, Your Girl. I Could Be Your Girl, which is my one of my favorite songs of Mariah Carey, and I felt like, yes, Mariah, you better work. I love that song. I didn't realize "Fantasy" was a Mariah Carey song until this. It was just like what? it was just a. I guess it was always a song that had stuck in my head for 28 years of my life, and I never like could pinpoint. It was just in the. Ear. She's I on mean, that roller coaster. That song is so good. There's so many songs because that's what I was gonna say. Is like I didn't. I don't know. Like I've never been a Mariah fan uh, but I've never not been a, a Mariah fan like I used to be obsessed with like the v-spot top 20 countdown on vh1 like the Saturday morning show where they would just like play music videos for two hours and the obsessed music video with like Jack McBrayer where he's like chasing her around with a nerf gun was in like the top 10 for a while and I remember being like this is a very fun music video <laughs> like it was like Ooh, so funny <laughs> it was it touch my body do you think I turned gay yesterday? Yes. It okay. was. <laughs> I gotta keep, whatever. I just like remember that music video. I just remember the Nerf guns and like her looking like so hot and ethereal and then it being like kind of silly. And that was like my intro to her. But then everything else I've really ever known about her or thought about her has been like drama gossip based. And so like reading this book, I like thought that it was going to be a lot more shade throwing, but instead it was very much about her artistry. And like, I kind of received that I read the book a couple weeks ago and I was like oh, I wish there was like way more gossip in this and now I'm kind of just like she gossiped about Celine Dion 
I guess I just want to like say on the back cover it says Mariah Carey is an American artist of black and Irish ancestry. And that's what this book is. And I think yeah. that's what's so incredible about it is it's a story that talks about what it is to grow up with the trauma of racism in your family and what she had to overcome just personally as a like familially and then in her career professionally, what she had to overcome as a black woman in the industry. And now you're just kind of like, she is, she was the industry. She was the entire Columbia records. Yeah. If she wants to be an hour and a half late, she should be, she deserves it. I really think it's a good example of being like, this is what I had to overcome. And you see any, anything she does now that seems entitled or diva-ish. It was, she had to work so hard to get to that point where she felt she was allowed to do that and she's earned it and she should. It's like a, a might, it's a power that she is owed. Like the fact that she's like kept this sense of self throughout literally an entire childhood and an entire like first 15 years of her career, people telling her not to be who she is. It's very similar to a lot of other big stars. You know, when Barbara Streisand came out, uh, she was this Jewish Brooklyn girl and, um, she came on stage and wore men's clothing from a vintage furniture shop and had Egyptian eye makeup, long fingernails, sang, spoke in different languages, asked for baked potatoes instead of drinks, like this kind of eccentric woman. And ever when she became famous, they were like, change your nose, cap your teeth, change your name. And she's like, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not going to change my nose and I'm not going to cap my teeth and I'm not going to change what I am. And the same with Barbara, the same with Mariah. They've just like, because they're so talented and they made it, they have, they have a right. You know, if mm-hmm. Mariah Carey wants to wear a fucking quinceanera dress to go to, the, to go to bed, like, go ahead, bitch. Like, you fucking earned it. Yeah. I think it is really interesting because we used to talk a lot on our Britney podcast about how Britney just had this sparkle about her. And there was just these little things that made her so Britney. And I think when you look at Mariah and like Barbara Streisand and like Britney and like the people who really have had like a lasting impact versus the people, I mean, there's so many people who've had like a handful of radio hits that you like will forever remember. But honestly, if you asked me to like draw them, I like cannot remember a single detail of their face or like who they are. And it's like because they did agree to like the industry grooming in a way where like there's nothing that stood out about them because they were willing to just... And like, it's such a risk to say no to the fixing. You know what I mean? Because you right. want it's, a career. <laughs> you want something. This yeah. is a picture. This is my tattoo of Maria Callas that I got. <laughs> she is my, That's she incredible. is the, the world's great. There's also a poster of her behind me. She's the greatest artist of all time, but she's an opera singer. And she is the same as them where she did not bend for the industry. So when she was a nobody, she auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera, the greatest opera house arguably in the world maybe la scala is more right and she auditioned and they said we'd like to offer you fidelio uh, but you have to sing it in english and she goes no and they go excuse me and she goes no it's against my principles i'm not singing it in english all right well how about madam butterfly no not a good enough opening for me and she walked away and she had no career she was living in her dad's house in queens Mariah Carey talks about the first person to be interested in one of her demo is a movie house wanted to buy one of her songs for $5,000. I mean, she had not a, she was living off of $1 a day. She was going bagel or subway every morning and she turns it down because she knew she was worth more. I mean, I want to talk about like some of the gossipy stuff and some of the shade she throws. <laughs> Mariah Carey's the queen of shade. Yeah. Mariah Carey and Aretha Franklin are two shady queens and I love them. Mariah Carey has just gone, she's had a feud with Madonna. She had a, a fake feud with Whitney. She never really talked shit about Whitney, and they ended yeah. up obviously becoming friends. Um, J-Lo, who she won't even mention her name in this that book. 
okay, that's what I want to talk about is like for me, the most insulting thing is the people that she has beef with that she leaves out entirely. I feel like the ones where she acknowledges, oh yeah, we didn't see eye to eye about like X, Y, Z. I'm like, okay, she's like giving respect to the situation. But the fact that she does not mention JLo, she does not mention Eminem, Nick Cannon does not come up until page like 320 something out of 330. (laughs) Like it's genius. Like literally if... She was Although she doesn't hate Nick. She actually gets, they actually, they get along. Openly do a good job of, do, they do the right thing for the kids. I think that is what it is. I think, I mean, I think it's like, she like shows respect to him because they're like co-parenting. But I think it's like very telling to me that he mentions her kids so many times and does not mention him until the last 10 pages. She also, I found it really shocking because her Madonna really, had a feud. In the early 90s, Madonna said, I'd rather kill myself than sing Mariah Carey's songs. So Mariah Carey you was... You right? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I'm like, go ahead and try Madonna. Like, Madonna, you cannot sing Mariah Carey's songs. I love you. You're a genius. Good she can luck, do girl. so many things. She can't do that. <laughs> she cannot do that. Um, but Madonna, Mariah Carey's response to Madonna's comment was, um, I didn't really... I, I only... I haven't thought about Madonna since she was popular, like when I was a kid. So, like, I don't think about her anymore. The obviously the J Lo, <laughs> yeah. Mariah Carey's like her her original shade against J Lo was on the Charm Bracelet tour in two thousand three, and this German interviewer asked her, "What do you think of Beyonce?" And her and Beyonce are good friends. I love Beyonce. She's so talented. She's a young artist. She's gonna make it. I believe in her. She's big things. And J Lo, I don't know her. I, I mean, I think about that all the time. Well, in the book, she kind of gives, like, why that beef started. And it was all Tommy Mottola. Yeah. When he left, he undermined her twice by, one, stealing the sample that Madonna was about to release for Glitter and giving it to J-Lo. And then having J-Lo do the song with, who is it? Sorry, I'm blanking. Uh, who is, I don't know. Is that who she does I'm Real with? Sure. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know J-Lo's <laughs> catalog. But I mean, J-Lo doesn't know J-Lo's catalog. Wasn't that an Ashanti song that they just had J-Lo lip sync? No, there was like another woman who like sang J-Lo's first album for J-Lo that they like replaced. That's why there's like a whole very intricate theory that like there was another artist who like the label was working with and then they like met J-Lo and decided she was better. So they just like put J-Lo's face on this album and she like did not sing a word of it. And now the reason her voice sounds so fucked up and weird is because she's having to like retrofit into this voice that wasn't hers. She like can't even sing with her real voice because then everyone will be like, well, that wasn't your voice. Like, how did your voice become this like a hundred percent different thing? And um, I believe it hardcore. <laughs> yeah. I want to say my biggest complaint about the book with Mariah is to build a fountain. Like, you have to understand as a singer, people think, oh, she was just born with that voice. No. It is so hard to achieve what she achieved. Even if she's born with the most talent in the world, you have to vocalize to get to, how do I do these embellishments? How do I do these chromatic scales? How do I do these riffs? How do I hit these whistle tones? How do I hit the, how do I mix in my passaggio from my head voice to my chest voice? How do I find these breathy tones? How do I find, you know, you don't just, you're not just born with it. And all she said was, I used to sing along to the radio and sing to the heights of Minnie Riperton. I'm like, bitch, I wanted to hear, like, how did you discover your whistle tones? How did you master them? How did you mix your head voice and chest voice? How did you get your chest voice to go so high? Like, where was the technician? Where was the, I think she's so Well, I feel to- like it was Pat, right? The, the, op, the Juilliard-trained opera singer mother. She kind of said as a childhood, they would practice scales together and she would sit down. So that's kind of, as somebody who 
doesn't know anything that I was like, Oh, well, there's the answer. She practiced with her mom, but you're saying that's not all of it. I think it's really interesting. The things that she like wants to make super clear and the things that she like tiptoes around. And so the way that she wants it so obvious that she is an incredible songwriter. And she talks about like the inspiration, how she came up with certain lyrics down to like every single detail of some of her favorite songs that she's written. Which Um, I loved. And I think you're right. (laughs) That she's doing that because she does not get the credit for being a songwriter and is so beloved for her voice that she downplays the voice and upplays the songwriting. So anyone reading this book cannot get past that she's a songwriter. That being said, I don't understand how she's ignoring, essentially ignoring, that her the physical embodiment of her voice is so insanely talented and good that requires an incredible amount of work to get there and she almost completely like she's talking about i started making demos like how did you figure out that she didn't even mention her whistle tones like how did you figure out you could do this because i wonder if she wants you to think it's inherent like i don't really know anything about singing and so i was like oh she just Things like that. And like, until you're explaining it right now, like I would not know. Like, and let me I ask think- you a question. Do you think Michael Jordan just picked up a basketball one day and was that good? Or do you think he practiced hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours till he was able to do that? Can I say that's such a funny comparison? Because reading this book, I was like, oh, she's so pretentious. But like my argument all along about Michael Jordan, when people talk about how he's like a pretentious asshole, has been like, if you're the best at something, like why would you be humble about it? And then after I finished this book and I was like, God, she's so pretentious. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sexist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Like, to, to sing at that level is an Olympic athlete. She is an Olympic athlete. Like Ariana Grande is a fucking great singer. I love her. And they are always compared to each other. And I think Mariah was throwing shade at her, but now they're going to do some Christmas duet together, whatever. Like Ariana Grande is probably right now, her and Adele would be like the singer. And Jennifer Hudson would be like the singers of our time. But even Ariana, Adele, and Jennifer Hudson do not compare to Mariah in her prime. Just yeah. They're just not at her level. But I think it is that she wanted us to think that she just like, do you know what I mean? Like, I think that, Mm -hmm. like, I think a lot of this book is her like shaping a very specific narrative. And I think that like, she wanted like the people, like people like me who don't know anything about singing, who like didn't think twice about how hard you must train. Like, I think she wants us to think it was just like, she just does that. And I was like, oh, she just does that. You know what I mean? I was like, Let's oh, she do works. a practice real quick. <laughs> no, okay. please don't make me sing. No, no, we're going to do this. Okay. Do either one of you sing? <laughs> I like, when you were saying that the normal person has like two and a half octaves, I think I have like 0. 0.75 octaves. <laughs> Let's do a Mariah Carey riff. Okay. Let's see if we can all get Mariah Carey's riff. Okay. You want, so we're, I'm going to do a riff and we're going to see if y'all can get, if you can do it. Okay. It's from Lead the Way in Glitter. Okay. And the riff goes, over, over. So go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, Ashley. I really couldn't even remember it. I was Just like, go, over, over. <laughs> over. <laughs> I can't even do it. Like to us, I think it's a lot like comedy. It's so funny because I think that's the comedy thing is people are like, oh, you just are funny and you get up there and are funny and you're like, 
I always say, I'm like, do you, you be musical? Does that mean you pick up a violin and know how to play a violin? Right. No. Yeah. Stand up is like, it's like a learning a mu- instrument or something. It's something you have to learn how to do. And you have to do it every day. And you can have an aptitude for it, but it's a, com- it's not talking to your friends. It's a completely Thank different you, set that you have to, you have to train and you have yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. But yeah, I think like the fact that she leaves that out is because she like wanted us to believe that. Like there's a lot in this book. Like I think it's very interesting because there's so much that I learned about her and there's so many more questions that I have about like, where I'm like, I can tell that there's another story here that you like very specifically did not include, you know? To me, to get to my criticisms where Claire, we disagree, is her glitter era, I find it to be, have more holes than a slice of Swiss cheese. I think she leaves a lot out. <laughs> I think she left. I didn't know anything. And I was just like, this poor girl just showed up to TRL with a funny idea. <laughs> I think that in Mariah's defense, I think that Mariah Carey was being screwed by Tommy Mottola. Mm-hmm. She had a lot of pressure on her to suddenly be not just be, you know, before she was protected by Tommy in the sense that like she could write the songs, produce the music, work on the work. Now it's like, now you're the CEO. Now you're in control. Now, so she was trying to do 15 people's jobs in her own. So I do believe and agree she was overworked and people did not care for her, her general health. They saw her as a money, you know, making machine, et cetera. That being said, I will not, I will not say any, I won't say what I think happened, but I will say I think there is a lot of missing pieces to this story. And to quote my friend Trana Wintour, she said it was like a watercolor painting. It really blurry. (laughs) Like for those of you who did not read the book, um, she (laughs) undergoes an enormous breakdown where she basically has this you know, this misread situation on TRL that's quite embarrassing. Um, she is supposed to go and like record two music or a music video or two or something. And she ends up just like not showing up because she's like really overworked. She needs rest. Um, she goes to hide out with her friend in Brooklyn. Um, her family comes to get her and like she ends up escaping with her. She got that hotel. She got a hotel. And the family. Oh yeah. Her family showed up at her hotel. just came to the hotel. It's like this whole mess where like, and then her brother or someone convinces her to go hide away at her mom's house upstate, her brother. brother, And then, but then her mom comes home and she's, she yells at her mom. And so then her mom calls the cops and then she's institutionalized and, and it's just like something else happened. (laughs) (laughs) Like you did not just just have an argument with your mom and then get institutionalized. And she's like, I thought I was going to a spa, but when I got there, it was not a spa and I was locked in like a padded cell and that is not spa-like. And I was like, for sure, I agree with you. And she was given (laughs) drugs. She wasn't told what they were. I mean, I believe that that happened, but I agree Mm -hmm. with you. What... Whatever happened, I am on Mariah's side. I think... I'm in defense of Mariah Carey. Yes. I, that being said, I think that there's some, some things that are left out. Now, if she wanted to leave it out, that's her prerogative. My takeaway from it is, I believe Mariah Carey was abused by her family, yes. abused in this situation. I believe Mariah Carey is also not letting us know the full story. I completely... That's exactly, I feel that there was probably a bigger breakdown that was warranted that like she yeah. at this point in her life was entitled to even even bigger mental freak out because she had been under a lot of stress and was under a lot of scrutiny. And I like 
I fully believe that when these people have a breakdown, they should have a breakdown. Like they are billion dollar corporations. That are, like, yeah. I mean, Britney's we talk about all the time. Like this reminded me a lot of Britney's breakdown and that one I can like fully trace exactly how and why that happened in my head. Like I understand it. I think it's interesting that in this book, like my criticism is that I think she only talks about negative things when either she is in the right or if she has like a good excuse for why it happened. Do you know what I mean? Like... I mean, do you think she's playing the victim too much? I don't know if it's like the, like she's not saying people did things to her, but I think that like, like with the TRL thing, like she, she was like, this is why it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. Like glitter didn't work out because of like 9-11 and there was just like an enormous criticism on me. Like it's, I don't know if it's necessarily like playing the victim card, but it is like a very like twisted presentation of events where like she isn't wrong. Well, I think that she, the one thing I like is she admits the movie was not what it was meant to be. Yeah, but because she's like, well, after I got involved, there was a lot of rewrites. Right, And it's like, okay. (laughs) Um, I think that it was impossible for Glitter to do well because there was a a world tragedy. I agree. (laughs) Uh, uh, I mean, what was kind of funny is she (laughs) she almost like mentioned 9-11, seeing it at that institution, and then like, kind of doesn't bring it back up again. She's like, but anyways, glitter. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, can I say this is the funniest thing to me because we have read now a lot of celebrity memoirs and every single celebrity talks about 9-11 in a very dramatic way and like how it affected their life enormously. And 9-11 did affect Mariah's life enormously and she really kind of leaves it out. (laughs) Well, I think to protect Mariah a little bit, I think she was so fucked up at that time. Yeah. That she couldn't even process 9-11. It's like to Mariah's credit to me that she doesn't just like attribute insane life choices to 9-11 the way like every other celebrity we've read has. <laughs> I think that um, the glitter era just was messy for everybody. I felt vilified vilified for her when Emancipation of Mimi. I was like happy for her, excited for her, happy about her kids, happy about, you know. I found the mother to be the most challenging part for me to read. Yeah. Because I, one, I felt, I felt for Mariah that the only person really in her life was her mother who was competitive with a 12-year-old and obviously not living in great circumstances but did not protect her from her sister, did not protect her from her brother, did not protect her from the outside world did not make an effort to try and teach her about her black heritage. I mean, it it just was like, and then on top of all that, I I just felt like I didn't know that about her mom because all I've seen of her mom was the Oprah interview. Um, They sang a duet together. They did like a Christmas duet together. And I just thought her mom was just kind of this boring white lady who was just like, I sang at the Metropolitan Opera. (laughs) You ever see the duet with her and her mom? No, no, but that sounds... I mean, that, like, breaks my heart more because the efforts that she's gone through to, like, forgive her mom and, like, give her mom things when, like, all her mom has done is, like, kind of try to minimize her. Like, ever since she was young, to, like, be competitive with a 12-year-old is just insane. <laughs> I did feel like it's insane, but it's common. I mean, the story of the mother with talent who gives it all up to raise this family... Yeah, and then have a kid with the exact same dream and get to watch that dream be realized by the very thing that killed you. I understand it's not like great mothering, but I do think <laughs> it is like a pretty common trope and like a yeah common trauma. I still think it's like hear her mother. Bad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
and watch Mariah outdo her mom. Ready? Incredible. Is, oh my god, I can't imagine being in that house. Like, what a what a road tripping duo they must have. <laughs> well, that's funny because when Mariah made that joke about was it Michael Jackson or Prince? What were they listening to? I think it was Michael Jackson, and it was you've got like, to be starting something. You've got to be starting something. She's like, Mom, that's not how it's sung. You really wish so you could funny. sing as good as I could. I'm like, well, I'm, you can. I mean, that was a heartbreaking story for me. Was the story of when she's accepting the Congressional Medal of Honor, and her mother gets so drunk she starts screaming, "I hate Mariah!" and has to be taken out and saying she only lo- only Morgan loves her. She only loves her son Morgan. And she and then she has that line where she just goes, "I was I just clung to my trophy alone in the limo crying." And you're just like. It's true. All the money and success in the world. If your mom doesn't love you, there's like you can't buy your way out of that. It also is like a thing that like can't really be like learned or accepted. Like you just like see her keep trying again and her mom like letting her down every single time. And like it's not something that you can just be like, oh, okay, logically I can understand that my mom will never be there for me. Like that's not a human emotion or like a coping mechanism of any kind, really. Well, interesting, I think, is the way she talks about how her grandmother, her mother's mother, grew up very racist in the town dominated by the KKK. She, they were excommunicated. The only one grandchild she'd ever meet was Mariah because Mariah was so light-skinned. And that how once she died, her mother, Pat, would go and like light a candle for her every week at church. And she was like, strange how death can make you forgive somebody's trespasses. And then I think the difference... She treats her father and her mother. Yes. Like, I have to say, I felt it was deeply flawed, but realistic the way her father seems really kind of unscathed in her memories of him. She, he's really honored and put on a pedestal. And I mean, I've seen that in my life, the way dads can really treat you, do you dirty. And then you can turn around and be like, but mom. <laughs> I also, I think it's because her dad's dead. <laughs> and so I think it's like... Sure. That's what I meant to say with the grandmother is that that her dad's dead and she writes the book. It's uh, not to bring up Barbara again, but it's a, Barbara's dad died when she was 14 months old and was raised by her mother and had just lots of resentment towards her mother. And every time she talks about her father, glowing reviews of her father. Liza Minnelli, same thing. Judy Garland is her mother. Doesn't really talk about her mom that much and just glowing reviews of, you know, the dad. I think the dad was such an interesting figure in the book because when she spoke of her dad, it it was the most, um, it was the most peaceful Mariah sounded. I yeah. thought it was interesting that she talked about how she looked forward to those Sunday dinners and she liked the ants in his family and she uh, liked the, um, you know, she liked that he was stern. He liked, she liked that he was military. She liked that he kept things clean. She liked that, you know, but part of me did wonder like, well, where was he? Especially when she was getting homeless and she didn't need a, like, I get that single fathers to this day. And especially back then they didn't know how to schedule preschool play days and stuff, but it was odd the way they were so separated I mean, I also think I found Mariah to be very generous in her, like, understanding of people's damage. And even with her sister, she oh, talked yeah. about she, she was She's so self-aware, and she was very, 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 you know, she understood her dad's pain. And I think that book, a lot of her, of her understanding her dad's pain about growing up black 
was her understanding her own pain. Yes. And, and I think because he's dead, it was, it was a narrative. She could see to the completion. It was, I felt like it was such a, not a clean cut story, but it was, it was so well told this entire man's life. You could really understand what had made him who he was from his grandfather being kind of wild. And he decided he would be in the military and the way the military turned their back on him and the way his race affected who he was and how he raised his children. Even at the end when she talks about on his dying bed, the brother Morgan comes to see him and he wouldn't see his own son. And she was like, their, their problems are so much about masculinity and what it was to be a man that she's like, I don't think he could see him at his weakest. And I just felt that that was like deeply insightful and felt very honest and felt very like relatable. Yeah. And like, yeah, just like the amount of forgiveness, like the fact that like, where was he? Like she talks about how their Sundays just kind of fell off and there's no sort of resentment in that where she is like, he's, stopped coming to see me. He stopped coming to pick. Like, I don't know. I feel like if I had like a weekly, one weekly date with my dad and then he just stopped showing up for it, that would be a lot more like traumatic than it's portrayed. To compare the two zingers from the parents that were kind of brought up that I'd say were equivalent. There's the story when she's like 13 or 14 in the car and she teases her mom and her mom goes, you can only wish to be half the singer I am one day. And she's like, from that moment on, it was a different dynamic but then there's the line when she's won the two grammys her first year in the industry and her father goes well maybe you should produce so that you could win as many as quincy and i do like in my like with my own dad i'm like oh that's something my dad would say and it's like because men don't know how i always joke that all dads become autistic it's just something about having a child <laughs> that it makes them they also people also we all probably experience this people don't understand that life not about security can be a life. And what I mean by that is I think a lot of people want just a paying job, a 401k. They don't want to leave this secure bubble for themselves. And when people actually go and do it, when people actually go and live their lives, they do not comprehend it. So for example, when I did Stephen Colbert like three years ago or something, this girl I went to high school with, lover, adorable, great, hadn't heard from forever, messages me. I saw you on Stephen Colbert. That's so great. So is this like a hobby? She just didn't under. I'm like, no, I'm not like at a paint and drink yeah. night. Okay, I'm on Stephen Colbert doing stand up. Like, but they, but people, if they know you, right? We just think celebrities are celebrities, and that's their life. But if they know you, they can't wrap their mind around. But you didn't follow the script. Yeah. You didn't you didn't do. You didn't get a wife and kids and four hundred one k, and they can't compute. It's something you would almost say to your daughter who would bring home an A, and they'd be like, "Well, where's the A plus?" It's very much like mm-hmm. my only relationship to you is to expect you to do better and try to push you to be better. So even when you've become the best, I still don't know how to compute that. So I'm going to treat it with, "Well, what's better than two Grammys? What if you got thirteen Grammys?" Mm-hmm. Like it's just he doesn't know how well he doesn't know how to be let go of that role of the parent and the person in charge and just be proud and in awe. Although she said that she found all the clippings of everything she ever did and this and that and blah, blah. Yeah. I, I, fathers and estranged fathers and mother, you know, so my own family, my mother's father, right? So my, my mother's father is Mexican. Mom is Italian. He had five kids with my grandma. And then I think three or four kids with another woman at the same time, named them all the same names. So he didn't confuse them. The kids? Wait, so there's another... Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, that's right. So I have two Aunt Lisa's, two Uncle Joaquin's, two... Yes. 
So um, my grandma found out, divorced him. So my mom basically grew up Italian, Mexican, until she was like 12, 15, 13. And then, boom, never spoke of that family again. Suddenly, we're just Italian. My grandma remarried a, Sicil- a Sicilian. And then they're just Italian, right? And my mom's dad did not reach out to her, did not speak to her, did not write to her until she was in her 30s. And she finally decided to go find him again. And she did, her and her sisters, and they found peace with him and, and, and talked to him. And he answered all the questions and this and that. And finally he started, I met him and he would write us letters for our birthdays and stuff. His name was Joaquin, but he would write Jack. So from Jack Maldonado. But I'm like, I, you know, my grandmother was furious with my mother. And I thought this is sort of the same situation where it's like, Obviously, not, Mariah's dad wasn't abusive in that way, but it's like she's dealt with a lot of trauma, including with her dad and the brother and the fighting and the sister. There's so many moments her dad could have protected her or knew she was living in a flea-infested shack with her mother, could have protected her. I mean, I don't know what the logistics are of obviously being a man at that time, et cetera, but um, it just reminds me of my mom. My mom, before my, her dad died, found forgiveness and loved him. And I'm like, but all those years of neglect... Or all those years of not speaking, or all those years, like, what is that? It's amazing how men can do nothing. And <laughs> sorry, I know mean, that sounds like a Twitter thing, but it is like <laughs> there is this way where you're mad at your mom for giving you an imperfect childhood, even more mad with her than you are at your dad who didn't try to give you a childhood at all. Like, it's a, I mean, I have my mom, her parents were divorced, and she always blamed her mom because her mom, like, kind of after the divorce, ran off with another man and kind of started her a new life, like a second chapter of life, but down in Florida. And my mom always felt very like neglected by that. They felt like she didn't want to be their mother anymore. And then it came out on her deathbed from her sister that the reason she had left is because my grandfather had been having an affair for years and literally refused to stop. She was just like, please stop. And he would leave every weekend and go spend the weekend with his mistress and just refused to stop. And so my grandmother finally couldn't take it and left and my mom was so shocked by this. And I was like, oh, that checks out, actually. I, I, I love it. But I was like, I love him because I was his grandchild, not his wife. <laughs> I mean, this happened, this came out maybe 10 years ago. I was recently talking to my mom and she said something about how her, she's like, well, you know, she kind of gave up on the marriage and didn't want to try again. My, grand, my, my dad wanted so badly to give another shot and she just refused. So some people could. And I was like, well, mom, he had the affair for 10 years. And she's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Like, <laughs> It's just in her narrative of him, she like couldn't switch it even with all of the all of the facts. I mean, that's awful to refuse to stop your affair no matter what. And then, but in my mom's mind, she's like, "Oh, my poor dad was so sad." But after the divorce, he did everything he could to win her back, and she just wouldn't give him another chance. I'm like, she gave him ten years of chances. <laughs> my mother, my grandma, and grandpa split. My grandma told my mother when she started talking to me again, "Do not speak to him." He tried to get tried to get me to get an abortion when you were pregnant. And my mom thought for years that he was lying. And she asked him when she met him up again, you know, years later. And he said, that's true. He goes, I was trying to get your mother to abort you. And my mother still, <laughs> but that's my mother's prerogative. That's her relationship. I do think that's a lot dad. of women's prerogative is for some reason, men aren't, they don't have the burden of child rearing on the day to day. So they can kind of get away with it. They can, I think at that point, too, though, he, there was no defense. And yeah. the same with Mariah's dad. It was like... Oh, I agree. <laughs> it was yeah. like, he didn't lie. He, you know, but my mom's situation, he didn't lie. He wasn't hiding. He said, I'm a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. I was a young 
I was 18 when I got married to your mother and, you know, I was a piece of shit. And it's like, okay, I guess it's easier to deal with someone and forgive them when they just own up to it. You know, I think in Mariah's case, what was really interesting is like, she could have had those feelings towards her dad. She could have kept angry. She could have kept this. She could have kept that. And maybe she's more resentful for her mother because her mother being white, just in so many ways, didn't deal with the same shit that her dad did. Didn't deal with the same traumas. Didn't deal with the same. So she's looking at their lives. She's almost able to be angry at her mother because her mother just didn't suffer the same life. She wasn't a black man in the fifties and the sixties. And Mariah Carey was looking at her dad thinking this poor guy not only risked his life to marry a white woman and have biracial kids, but he did literally the best that he could possibly do. And the thing that kept him grounded was this sort of military background and keeping things clean and working on his car or whatever. It's like, Maybe, you know, it's like Mariah is smarter than all of us and she yes. could see that. And she's like, maybe that's why she's more forgiving towards her dad. I mean, and yeah. off of that, she does kind of almost lay out that she felt like her existence and her brother's existence and her sister's existence was almost an act of rebellion, ironically, against her own grandmother. And then raised these children that she did not do the due diligence to raise. She mm-hmm. did not, she wanted to be a part of the black community in this kind of like, avant-garde I'm a bohemian look at me I don't care about social status but then she didn't raise them right and so I do I feel like like rightfully so resents I guess I feel for the mother in the sense that at those times her mother did fall in love with Mariah's dad and there was was no one there for them (laughs) yeah there was no one to teach them there's no tv shows there's no self-help books and her family completely rejected her too so it's like what did she you know it's like I think about my being raised okay I grew up with 36 cousins I had all my aunts and uncles I have my grandparents like I had so many places to go for love and so many people to shape me and mold me that were positive in my life and Mariah's family was like that was it the hardest part to me was the way that her siblings resented her so hard growing up was like so traumatic because if there's anyone that's going to understand what she's going through, it's them. And they like hated her. (laughs) Well, there was an age gap too. Yeah. Uh, Clearly the parents didn't do a good job raising any of those kids. Right. Let's just throw that out there. But there was like an age gap and it could have been like a mentor you know, like some, I feel like some right. kids have like a sibling that's much older than them, and that sibling is like more like an aunt or an uncle who like really kind of like mentors them through shit. And instead, those siblings were like, "Look at our new little like punching bag." <laughs> right. No, I think I think Mariah. I remember reading an article years ago about Mariah Carey refusing to pay her sister's hospital bills, and I said, I was like, she's been dealing with this forever. And I knew the song I Wish You Well, which is from E equals MC squared, that album. Not one of my favorite Mariah albums, but she had a song called I Wish You Well. I Wish You Well. It was all, I'm like, this is all about Allison. I didn't realize about the brother and the mother, but I was like, this is all about her family. Because it's like, she's probably like, what the fuck else do you want me to do? I paid all your goddamn bills. Stop blackmailing me. Stop. And then at what point is it enabling? I mean, that story about her first rocker deal being sold and her mom and her brother bring her back to Long Island to try to blackmail her for five grand for a murder scheme to murder her mom's ex-husband. It's such a psycho. Yeah. Look, if my brother had made a million dollars tomorrow, I also would be like, 
Thomas, take me out to dinner right now. Like, you know what I mean? I think I would ask for something before I would say congrats because siblings aren't perfect, whatever. But I would never be like, Thomas, I have this idea to murder our cousin. <laughs> you need to pay me $5,000 or your career. Like, it is such a convoluted, dark, sinister first yeah. off. I do also think that it is like in the forgiveness of the dad and like because he was so absentee, like there was like this major problem and that is that he kind of disappeared. But that's kind of all like the biggest thing that he had to apologize for was like simply not being there. Whereas the mom let her down time and time again. Like she would like lob the mom a chance and the mom would just like fuck shit up. I mean, Mm -hmm. he was physically abusive and that was kind of like, that was like a big one, I guess. Um, So there was two big ones, the abuse and then the absent, the absentiness, which in some ways solves the abuse. (laughs) I feel like the way that the mom, like she kept on in her head, like wanting this mother daughter relationship that was never going to exist. And so part of it is that she, is like very Mariah in like conflating this situation with her fantasy with reality. You know what I mean? Like I think she really had this fantasy of like a beautiful mother-daughter relationship that her mom was failing to live up to, but her mom also did definitively fuck up time and time again. Like buying her mom that beautiful it's also house. It's crazy because I wasn't, re- you know, like sometimes you see, hear songs and you look back at the lyrics like, oh, that was about her mom. I had no idea the song, My Mother's a Piece of Shit, was about that. <laughs> I didn't, none of that. It's White just like... Crack- Dumb bitch mom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It was on, it was on Rainbow. <laughs> She no, like, it was on Rainbow. It was on B cut on Rainbow. She like buys her mom that house upstate and she's like, this will be the place that we as a family can all come and be together. And then obviously that's like, that's not the relationship their family had. But then still when she was in the middle of that breakdown, like that was the place she thought she could go and be safe. And then still her mom was like, I'm having you institutionalized right now for being here. And it's just like over and over again, she like thought that she had this relationship that was never a thing, you know? Well, I also thought was funny was the way, which I think was one of the small telling things from Mariah about uh, what would Pat's version be. And the way Mariah made a little comment about how she always had a housekeeper at her mother's house because she didn't like the way she kept it. And the way she's there was a mental breakdown. And now I look back and now that you're like, there's holes, she's like, the plates kept slipping out of my hands as I was trying to clean them. I'm like, I wonder if that's... She's like, I clean. Cleaning makes me feel... Um, I like the way I clean is I throw plates at the ground. <laughs> I was like, bitch, you're not at a Greek wedding, okay? This is... <laughs> but it was even in her breakdown and her retelling of literally being institutionalized, she was like, I was still cleaning up my mother's house. And I'm like, God, I wonder how that translates in real life to her mother that her dot like nothing was ever good enough for you you have to come like you bought me this house and you still come and tell me I don't live it right like I'm I think it's hard for any parent to see their child be like I want to do way better than you because you didn't do good enough and it's that her thing where Pat's like I'm I tried my best I mean I do think even if you want better for your child there is it's hard to be like told you did a bad job um before we wrap up I realized because I wanted to also just talk a little bit more about her loves her romances because it's also the same thing we didn't even get into Tommy we like barely talked about Tommy and I want to talk about the way that I felt that she it was so interesting to me reading about all of her romances and they were all very kind of like bizarre and unrealistic and like weird. Whereas she writes these like incredible love songs, but she kind of, to me, has never had a real relationship. I agree. I think all of her relationships have been strange. Miguel and Derek Jeter, which like, what was that? And then Tommy and then that billionaire from Australia. 
Who didn't even get a shout out. Yeah. No, and also she sued him for wasting her time and she won. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. Iconic. <laughs> no, her relationships, I would say, I think Mariah, when she says I'm eternally 12, which is something she's been saying forever, she's like, I'm 12, darling. Um, oh, darling. We didn't even get to that. I, th- I mean. Well, okay. Are- Can I say what I've been like? Is this too bad? So one of my big life beliefs is that sexual assault is a spectrum and we're all on it. Um, <laughs> everybody has been sexually assaulted to some degree. I felt the way she talked about being a virgin, the way she talked about waiting till marriage with Nick Cannon, the way she. To throw with Tommy. She and was, with Tommy. Oh, with Nick. I see what you're saying. I, th- Sorry, I see when- what you're saying. <clears throat> Because she was like, when me and Nick met, we didn't have sex until we got married. Well, Six weeks later. Two weeks. <laughs> oh, yeah. really? They were engaged. They like, I think they met and were in, I think they were married six weeks after they met. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I didn't get that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, then that makes it less impressive. Mm-hmm. But I will say, she talks a lot about being a virgin, even after she said sex, like with the Derek Jeter stuff. She's like, we just kissed. We just kissed. I have a bad feeling about that night. The the pimp took her to a poker game. I have a bad feeling about a lot of the years she spent in Long Island. Something about her high school boyfriend who was 6'5 and in his 20s and physically picked up her previous boyfriend and threw him across the parking lot and then they started dating. I have a hard time believing that he didn't want more from her than she was willing to get. I feel like what was missing here was the physical trauma that was done to her by a lot, a lot, a lot of people. That, And it's funny because you just brought up the dolling thing. I think the whole diva persona is a costume that she has been working on putting on her whole life, stepping into to protect herself. And I think when it comes across in the book, when she, sometimes she'll say something and go darling. And it is like, here's the Mariah costume that I've put on for the public and put on for myself in my career. Yeah. That's that's how she she said, I wear makeup to protect myself. It's a warrior shield for me. And so I do think talk about her love life. The missing ingredient is the deep, traumatic probably sexual assault she experienced her entire life allegedly allegedly I, I, we just have to say allegedly we but don't know allegedly. for sure but that is a um i don't As know a it sounds who grew up with two parents in like an upper middle class background and was protected every minute of my life went to boarding school private school i can tell you i have been assaulted you're not gonna tell me beautiful like, mariah who had a prostitute sister a, a brother who almost murdered somebody, a mom who was never around, that nothing happened to her. Yeah. I will say, I don't, I can't obviously speak on someone's... Um, assault history, sorry. Yeah. Assault <laughs> history. No, but I mean, what I will say is, I think I read between the lines as well, um, especially that horrific story with her sister's boyfriend who brought her to that movie theater. and Insane. That was horrific. Um I think Mariah Carey has always, no, no pun intended, lived in a little bit of a fantasy. Yeah. Um, and I can see that. And she openly admits, she's like, I've only had sex with, you know, amount, I can name the amount of people on my hand that I've had sex with, at least within 2003, that's what she was saying, because there's the stories about Eminem. I think that she never really learned what a relationship was when she was young, she never had independence to go and date and be young. And she put everything into her voice and her art and her music. And that's where she feels most at home, that things outside of that world. It's just treacherous waters. Yeah. And I think that I do think she really did love Nick Cannon. I think that she did probably have her sexual awakening with him. Um, 
it, it just, I, I hate to bring this up again, but it really reminds me of Maria Callas. Maria Callas was the same way. She was this young girl who was, had abusive family and then married this old guy who had a lot of money and made her a star. And then she finally left him for Onassis and that was her sexual awakening. And yeah. I think Nick probably, she doesn't, I don't think she talks about it that way, but like being truly in love and wanting kids and, um, feeling comfortable about, you know, being able to say I'm a black woman and not having being hidden by Tommy and making her feel like trying to white whiten her and stuff. But th- I do agree. There's bit, there is some kind of, there is some kind of um, disconnect with her yeah. and sex. And yeah. she looks sexy and she sings about sex and she's got these sexy videos and stuff. But there does seem to be a little bit of a disconnect. Yeah. I mean, either way, like even if none of that stuff is true, like any of this stuff we've yeah. just speculated, the, the thing that definitely oh, is... speculation. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that definitely is true is that she spent her 20s, like her entire 20s, the years that she should have been like learning about who she is as like a sexual being in a relationship, like learning how to be in relationships, whatever. She was married to a much older... A, like emotionally abusive man, you know, like she, like that is a thing that we like obviously know to be true. That's a fact is that like at the every minute of her like young adult life that she like should have been learning these things. She wasn't. <laughs> should we wrap up on like a happy yeah. note? I want to talk about Diva's life. Yes. She went in on Celine Dion and I thought that was fucking wild. And I just want to say that Aretha Franklin there's two stories to this. You have to watch the Carol King interview about this because Carol King talks about how Aretha, uh, Carol King's version, I think allegedly is that Aretha was just singing over people and Celine was trying to assert her, we rehearsed it this way, so I'm going to sing my part. Mariah saw it as don't try and compete with the queen. That being said, when they were competing <laughs> vocally, two completely different tones, but Celine Dion kept up. I would not <laughs> say that she's better than Aretha Franklin, but they were doing almost what they do in jazz, which is like where they're calling back. So Aretha Franklin would sing a note. Celine would sing the note. Aretha would sing a riff. Celine would sing a riff. And it was this, do you want to hear it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We can, all right, then maybe we'll just end on this, on the Diva Jam session. Well, before we listen to it, can you just give what your opinion is from watching it? Like, do you think Celine is overstepping her boundaries because it's Aretha's night? Or do you think... I think Celine overstepped her boundaries. Okay. But as a gay man, I fucking loved it. <laughs> so this is it. Aretha, they're doing the Diva Jam session. So it's Celine, Gloria Estefan, Sh- Shania Twain, Carol King, Celine Dion, Mariah Carey. Shania Twain, who was dressed like Helen Obama Carter that, that night from <laughs> the Harry Potter. This is it. Ready? Uh, is it? Is it? All right. All right. So Celine's going, happy left it. And then right after Celine steps out of the line, goes straight to Aretha and goes. They're ready. And now it's these two ready. They go off. Here we go. 
I love that. <laughs> what a literal high note to end on. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mateo, for doing this. This was so fun. And I'm thrilled to do it. I, I cannot so believe you asked me to do it. So thank you, thank you so, so much. much. Oh my God, I'm so excited for this. I can't yeah. wait.